Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Welcome to episode 112 of the Physicians Weekly's podcast. In this week's episode, we take a look at a mobile CT scanner, which is equipped with AI to detect head injuries, and it was installed on-site at the Munich Oktoberfest, which is the largest beer party in the world, let's face it. We speak with Professor Victoria Bogner-Flatz. She's the medical director of the emergency services at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Germany. And they just published their observations of the 2022 first-time event, after the pandemic with the CT scanner in situ just recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. Oktoberfest is in its full swing right now in Munich, and they've used the lessons from 2022 going forward, and the CT scan is back in place. Next, we speak with our regular contributor, a board-certified radiologist and malpractice lawyer who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw. After the recent Ocean Gates Titan submersible Titanic Explorer wreck disaster, There's been a little bit of media attention about some long disclaimers, including ones that specifically limit death as risk. Many doctors wondered whether pre-contracting with patients to limit legal issues could be worthwhile in their practice. Physicians Weekly explores this topic with Dr. Medlaw. Enjoy listening. So, Professor Bogner, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm a professor of surgery, indeed. And I am also the responsible doctor for the Munich on EMS authorities. So I was a pandemia manager last year or the last three years also. And together with my colleague, Dominic Hinsmann, we represent the emergency physicians on Munich EMS authorities. So this is the real role I am having in this game. I had some questions about the largest gathering of, it's a large event, right, that's happening right now in your hometown. Tell me about it. Yes, it's right. Munich Oktoberfest is a large-scale event, and maybe it's the largest event I am aware of in the world. So we welcome about 6 to 6.2 million guests in approximately 14 to 16 days in Munich every year. Almost every year we had to cancel it um, during COVID-19 pandemia twice already. So on some days we have half a million guests on Munich Oktoberfest and Munich is a city with 1.8 million inhabitants in total. So this is a real burden uh, for everybody. We welcome those guests and we, we really like it, but it's a challenge. So it's a burden on the medical community as well, right? In the local hospitals? Right. Yeah. Can you give me an idea of the sorts of problems that may come with this sort of event? Well, it's Basically, it's a traditional event, but also it's a large beer party, maybe the largest beer party in the world. So what we see is that our own habitants and also our guests sometimes underestimate, well, the, the let's say, amount of beer they, they are drinking and uh, the consequences of those amounts of beer. So for an emergency physician, this is, let's say, a challenge to deal with those patients because sometimes they are aggressive. Sometimes they have the usual uh, consequences you have if you had six to eight to 10 liters of beer the whole day. And some of them are sick 
like um, they get myocardial infarction, they get a stroke or something. And it's difficult to diagnose that in really drunk people. Some have accidents or even serious accidents. So that's the mix for us. Yeah, no, this is a huge scale. And of course, in the city swells to what one third of its additional population on top of everything. And I saw that in the New England Journal of Medicine, you guys published a, a rather innovative approach to handling some of this. Could you describe what, what that was about and how you came to that conclusion that this was a good solution? Yes. So we had to skip Munich Oktoberfest twice during um, COVID-19 pandemia. And um, in 2022, we were discussing about how to handle it. And we had to deal with very high infectious rates in July um, 2022. And we were worried, Munich uh, EMS authorities were worried about what may happen. So uh, we decided to let it take place, but try to guarantee safety as good as we could. This is why we placed the CT scanner on scene on Munich Oktoberfest grounds, because mild traumatic brain injury is very common in everybody in the world. It's a very common emergency presentation, but it's really, really common in Munich Oktoberfest visitors. So we intended to diagnose MTBI patients who are most of the time heavily drunk directly on scene to rule out an intracranial bleeding. So that's what we did. And this approach should um, take off burden on our emergency structures for the one point. And also it should make the emergency treatment better for those who, who had those mild traumatic brain injuries on scene. So we picked out 11 individuals with heavy intracranial bleedings last year and 23 with heavy um, mid-face fractures. Wow. And and so those people were then sent on for appropriate care elsewhere after the triage on site. That's right. And uh, that's a fascinating approach. And how many patients total did you see in that mobile unit? Well, we used an algorithmic approach that we use on our emergency departments also. And we had 205 patients in the CT scanner. We did about 300, I think it was 317 um, CT investigations in those patients. And uh, the whole majority of the patients could be released on scene. They could be released home. We didn't uh, need EMS transportation to a hospital. And so what are some of the lessons that we can take home from this experience? Will you be doing this going forward as well? Yes, we, we have a CT scanner this year again, because we had a real positive feedback last year. And the take-home message is that in large-scale events, it could be really, really useful. And maybe it could also be useful if you have a surrounding where emergency hospitals are a bit far away. Munich has a good structure of emergency hospitals, basically. So if you have a large-scale event or an, an event with possible heavily injuries, like maybe Formula One races or something like that, be really useful to place a CT scanner on scene. That's our opinion. And this is why the city of Munich decided this year to place it again on Oktoberfest. All right. Well, that's really interesting. And if you had so far, because Oktoberfest has already started, right? 
a few days ago, if I'm correct. Have you already had some visits and experience with that, or is there anything to update us with now? Already on the first day, we had a, an elderly man with a heavy subdural hematoma under Mark Humor. So he didn't have any signs of infracranial bleed from a clinical point of view, but he fell on his face and we put him in the CT scanner and he didn't want to, basically, but then we saw it's a real heavy bleeding and we could bring him to an intensive care unit. Okay, so that is, uh, it's right there, it just justified itself, I suppose. So this is an American audience, and largely, and I, a lot of people want to know, why, why do you call it Oktoberfest when it's really in September? <laughs> That's a good question. It's very well, confusing to Americans. Of what I learned in school about it, I think it should be, it starts in September, but it ends in October. Maybe this may, may be a good explanation, but basically it should welcome October or something like that. Very basically, it was a marriage party. It's The first one was in 1810. I can't really remember why. <laughs> why they... <laughs> And I guess I had another question, which was in, in the United States, for example, we have large events too, like Burning Man, that would also involve recreational drinking and drugs. Would you recommend some kind of uh, similar approach to, to our colleagues there? Well, we have also a problem with alcohol use or alcohol abuse on Oktoberfest and also with drugs. So the problem basically is that MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury symptoms, are close to be the same than symptoms of heavy intoxication. And you cannot, from a clinical point of view, point of view you cannot rule patients out who have a, an intracranial bleeding versus such who are just or only intoxicated. So this is why we really need this. And we don't want to lose Oktoberfest guests because of intracranial bleed. That's why. Okay. Are there any additional points you'd like to make for our audience and fellow, fellow physicians about how to generally see large-scale inebriation very rarely? Well, we are curious to see how the effects on our emergency medical structures are this year without, hopefully without pandemic effects. So last year, it was a real cause of pandemic and our wish to, to let it take place after we had it canceled twice already. The last time it was canceled was during Second World War, just to explain the dimension of canceling Munich Oktoberfest. So we wanted to have it take place, though we had an emergency state yet running during Oktoberfest last year. And we are curious to see how the effects on our EMS structures will be or might be this year without pandemia. So just under normal Munich Oktoberfest conditions. And I hope they will stay normal. Let's see how it will be. Okay. It seems like a very useful social program. And, and I hope that it's being uh, extended across other situations where it could be useful. So thank you so much. Very welcome. Hello, and welcome back to Physicians Weekly. We are joined again by our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. 
this time to discuss pre-contracting with patients to limit liability. Dr. Medlaw, thank you again for being with us. Great to be here. After the recent Ocean Gate disaster, there was a lot of hyping in the media about the long disclaimers, including ones that specifically listed death as a risk, that the participants had signed and that the company would rely on when lawsuits inevitably rolled in. Many doctors wondered whether pre-contracting with patients to limit legal issues could be worthwhile in their practice. Well, let's start with the fact that, you know, the media hype notwithstanding, those disclaimers are likely not going to be of anything other than very limited value as far as these critical safety issues. But it's still a very good chance for us to look at pre-contracting patients to try to limit liability. So can a doctor even do something like that? Sure. The doctor-patient relationship is itself a contract. The patient seeks the care, the doctor agrees to take them on, and the patient pays the doctor. That's the three predicates for a valid contract, all for acceptance and consideration. And in a contract, you can limit the liabilities and options of the parties. But just because the contract is written and signed doesn't mean that it will be enforced if it's challenged. So let's take a look at what will be more likely to be enforced. Well, the best place to start is sort of reverse engineering with what won't be, and that's assumption of risk. What is that? That's a defense against a negligence claim based on the plaintiff having actually agreed to take on the risk that they're now suing about. Um, it comes in two types. Uh, implied assumption of risk is asserted in cases where the injuries occurred when the plaintiff was voluntarily in a place where uh, an activity with dangerous aspects was going on. So a common example is sitting in the stands and being hit by an errant baseball. You know, once you agreed to sit in the stands, you knew that a ball might fly in there and might smack you in the head. The version that doctors often think applies to them, though, is express assumption of risk. And that's where, as is with OceanGate, someone signs a release that bars future claims for ordinary negligence. So the only thing they could sue about in the future would be reckless conduct or grossly negligent conduct or intentional conduct, conduct intended to harm. Well, that does sound a lot like a consent for medical care. And many doctors do believe that assumption of risk is built into that process because they have common elements. You know about the risk, you still agree to go ahead, and medical consent also doesn't cover recklessness or gross negligence or intentional misconduct. But the assumption of risk doctrine, it actually just doesn't apply to medical care at all. Well, the essential reason is that, you know, unlike a sub-company, a doctor's a fiduciary for their patient. They're legally bound to act in their best interests. An agreement that says that anything short of being utterly reckless or grossly negligent or actually trying to hurt the patient would be immunized would totally gut that. But doesn't the intention of the patient matter? It does, but in a way that also makes assumption of risk inapplicable. In consenting to a treatment that carries a risk, the patient is actually only saying that they understand that even a good treatment that's done properly can carry that risk. They are absolutely not agreeing to the treatment being done negligently in a way that then just happens to produce the same harm that they were warned about. 
So when they consent, they never intend to free the doctor of the responsibility to avoid risk on their behalf so that even the known risks that they were warned about will be less likely. Exactly. When consent is given, it's based on the patient assuming that the doctor will follow the standard of care that they're inherently bound to do. How about when the patient is the one offering to assume the risk because they want care that the doctor does not really approve of? Well, that's a great question. And this comes up when the patient says to the doctor that they will give them a hold harmless letter. And this is where patient autonomy, which is admittedly the basis of medical care, gets hemmed in by the doctor's fiduciary responsibility. It's still the doctor's duty of care to assess whether what is being requested of them is reasonable and to refuse to comply if it's medically incorrect. So no agreement from the doctor or permission by the patient can pre-contract away the doctor's duty to protect the patient's welfare by citing assumption of risk. Exactly. You can cite assumption of risk from today till the end of time, but you cannot pre-contract away the essential role of the doctor, which is to protect their patient. How about contract terms that limit how a lawsuit can be brought, if at all? Well, going back to uh, OceanGate, uh, it would be very surprising if the contract that the passenger signed didn't have a section that either requires disputes to be settled by arbitration or has a choice of law provision that sets the venue for any litigation to where the company wants it to be. In the medical setting, uh, adding an arbitration or venue clause to cover any medical malpractice claims to the intake papers that a patient would sign was very popular like about 20 years ago, but it then fell out of favor because courts were not enforcing these. However, with the increasing trends of hospital mergers into these corporate behemoths and the involvement of venture capital companies in private practice, these sorts of things are making some comeback. But how would a court being asked to enforce them feel? Uh, probably negatively. Uh, even when a doctor themselves is the patient, they know less than the doctor they are seeking care from, and the average patient knows far less. It can certainly be argued, and it will be, that billionaires could have engaged their own engineers to evaluate the sub before they got on it, you know, solely for recreation. The patients in need of care are not in that position to evaluate their doctors. So trying to hem in the options of an average person coming to you for health care, and certainly any indication that you were overweening in that, that'll convince a judge to strike what was never really agreement because the sides were so unequal. What would a judge look at? Well, the judge has to be assured that the plaintiff is not being stripped of meaningful rights. Since this will be about a contract, the first issue will be whether there really was, and I'm doing air quotes now, a meeting of the minds such that the patient knowingly and freely waived their right to go to court or to go to a court that was convenient for them. In other words, did they understand the ramifications of what they signed? If they did, would the limitation be automatically enforced? Uh, no. Uh, even if the patient agreed, the agreement itself must not have been inherently what we call unconscionable. What does that mean? 
It means that there's such disparity in the positions of the parties that a court just cannot, in good conscience, enforce the agreement, even if it looks fine on its face. Uh, unconscionability comes in two flavors, procedural and substantive. What are those? Well, procedural unconscionability occurs when one side is powerless as compared to the other, or the contract is just sprung on them. Um, this would not apply to rich, educated people planning a voluntary undersea excursion, but it would certainly apply if an average person is ill and is told that they won't be cared for unless they sign a waiver of rights. Substantive unconscionability exists when the contractual terms are so one-sided that they only benefit one party. And if that occurs, then it's what we call, and again, I'm doing air quotes, a contract of adhesion, and it won't be enforced. So because the contested agreement will be between a doctor or a hospital and a patient, a judge will frankly start from the presumption of procedural unconscionability that the doctor or the hospital then has to rebut by showing that, no, 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 they were scrupulously fair. How would that be done? Uh, several ways. Um, the care should have been elective enough and far enough away in time to allow the patient the chance to seek alternatives. There actually should be alternatives in terms of, you know, the specialty and who accepts coverage that they could reasonably seek, you know, so that they're not bound to that one practitioner or hospital. And the agreement should use easily understandable language. It should be visually easy to read, you know, short paragraphs, clear font. And it should be included in a document that is labeled clearly, you know, boldface as agreement to arbitrate or choice of law to separate it from any other intake papers so you don't end up just uh, being like uh, the, uh, uh, the, the colonel in MASH who used to just sign a pile of papers for radar and not look at what he was signing or not understand what he was signing. Uh, there should be a very clear statement of the rights that are being given up and it should also say that the patient may want to talk to a lawyer first. And this is really important. This should be a clear and easy revocation procedure that gives the patient adequate time to change their mind. Uh, if it's for arbitration, the arbitrator should be uh, not solely up to the doctor or the hospital. It should be mutual how they're chosen. And the arbitration process can't be by some internal rules. It would be best if it's by the rules of the American Arbitration Association. And finally, and again, this is uh, an important point, and it goes back to things that were attempted, as I said, about 20 years ago. It can't overreach and try to get uh, through this agreement what you couldn't have gotten through litigation, like loser pays or binding all future generations from suing. How would a doctor or hospital show that the patient actually saw all of that? That is a great question, <laughs> a really good practical question. The agreement should be individually initialed on every page that is not formally signed. This will be proof that the patient actually looked at every page in which they waived an important right. But this all having been said, um, even if you can do a great agreement that will be held up in court, you have to consider whether it's good business to, to do it. What are you referring to? Well, it comes down 
to how does a contractual limitation present you to the patient who is also someone who's going to be talking to other potential patients or posting online about you. A patient who sees that you're immediately thinking about being sued may have concerns about whether you're really a good doctor. And a patient who sees that you're shifting all the complaint and recompense issues to your favor is probably going to bristle at that, that they will leave and then tell their friends and post online negatively about it. Well, that's not unlikely. So if you're considering this, uh, think about it first in terms of whether it's really good for you. But if you decide to go ahead, make sure to be so fair that you will at least be able to get the benefit that you want, you know, should a problem arise. Dr. Medlaw, thank you again for being with us. And thanks for a chance to talk about this important topic. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast, but thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you found this an important topic to address. Please let us know if you have feedback. We're always open to it, and we're happy to take any requests or suggestions into account. All right, stay safe and stay healthy, and talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 